morning. Good morning, New Song LA. Let's give a hand to our worship team. Thank you for sharing your gifts with us and leading us into the presence of God. As we're worshiping today, as we're experiencing the presence of God together, I want to focus our attention on what happens when we're outside the room. It's easy as believers to experience the presence of God on a Sunday and to think about our relationship with God as being centered around this space and around this time. And this is a unique time, a sacred space and a sacred time set apart to engage and experience God. But we've been in a series entitled, I Work, and it focuses on how God shows up in all the other areas of our lives, how God shows up in our workplace, and how we can deliberately engage and experience God in the context of our work. As we talk today, I want to talk specifically about a type of work that uh, all of us have some ability to do, but some are uniquely gifted to do. Some are uniquely talented and uniquely inspired by God. And so today we're going to be talking about uh, art, and we're going to be talking about the creating beauty in the world. So our, our message today is entitled, I Work, Creating Beauty. Uh, I heard something really interesting today. I want to get your opinion on this. There was an independent art school that was doing really well. It had a, uh, a rich history of uh, training students in the arts, and they ran into some, some financial trouble. The future viability of the school was a little bit in jeopardy, and so they began to entertain the possibility of a merger, and they were recently acquired by a Christian university. And so this Christian university took over this art school, and it becomes now part of the Christian university. But as that happened, a problem arose. The university decided that any faculty at the art school that are not Christian will be dismissed. They will be let go. And so now uh, faculty, students are upset, other employees of the art school are upset that they're their teachers that are not believers, that are not followers of Jesus Christ, will, will be fired, basically. And it makes you wonder, you know, about that, that uh, merger, whether it's a good idea or whether maybe something could have been done differently. And so since we have been talking about work and how God shows up in our work and how we need to actually submit our, our work life to God, I want to ask you guys to do some work this morning. So we're going to do a little business case study here. Uh, on mergers and acquisitions. I'd like you to think about that situation I just described to you. Independent art school, people of all different backgrounds and faiths, has its own history, and now it's acquired by a Christian school that says all the faculty must be Christian. Those of you who are not uh, will be let go. What do you think should have happened there? Is that okay, or should something have been done differently? Turn to a person next to you and tell them your opinion on the situation. You might have to get up and move around a little bit, find somebody to talk to. All right, let's find out what you guys think. So, this group finished first. You guys seem to have got it all figured out. So let's start with this group. We have a microphone running toward you. What do you think? Did this situation go well, or should something have been done differently? Got somebody right here? Yeah. Yeah, um, so I was just talking with my group, and... um, we just kind of discussed that it was a little bit unethical to kind of push that. It's a faith-based um, situation, so they shouldn't force anybody to do anything they're uncomfortable with. So, 
All right, so you're saying that it's an ethical issue if you're telling people that their employment depends on them having Christian faith, that puts them in an in a, uh, unfair position. Okay, anybody else? What do you think? I just want to piggyback off that, that I think that, you know, I believe that God will do his work when we provide a situation for him to not play God kind of thing. Ah, okay. Thank you. Anybody else? What are your thoughts? Anywhere in the room, raise your hand. The microphone will find you. All right. We got some reluctant spokespeople. Go ahead. Well, we discussed that. Um, we thought, first of all, that they should have maybe sought the Holy Spirit for guidance because sometimes when... Um, a door opens, um, it takes control away from the body. Um, second of all, Jesus was counted with the sinners and the publicans, so, I mean, he didn't discount them. Paul taught in the Greek temples. He didn't, you know, tell them they were all wrong. So I think looking at it from a more, um, how can we minister where we're at rather than changing that? Hmm. Okay, very insightful. Anybody else over here? See one in the back there. Yeah, I think it depends on is if the... Um, University is converting the art school into a Christian art school um, because when you think about Title VII um, and how it depends on the size of the school, if they're privately funded, if they're religious funded, I mean, a lot of that comes into place. I don't think it's a matter of ethics. It's a matter of what makes sense for the business. And if it is an actual Christian school, that may just be one of the things that they require of their professors. All right. So, man, you brought in the law there with Title VII. So just to clarify, I, I'm actually um, on the board of a, of a Christian university. The one that I'm talking about right now is not the one that I'm on the board of. Um, but uh, this is a school where you, you have to be a Christian to be on the faculty. That's, that's how the Christian school operates. And so then it acquires this art school that is not a Christian school, and, and that's where the, the tension comes in. Anybody else over here, any other opinions about how this could have been done differently? All right, we got somebody over here. Okay, waving in the corner. This will be the last one. You need an opposition position. You have the last word, Ritha. <laughs> I think that the school should have made it clear when the acquisition took place that that was going to happen. Mm. But I think we are not of this kingdom. We are of a different kingdom. So if you have darkness and light there, you're going to have you're going to have heresy basically taught. Hmm. And if people want to go to a, a non-Christian school, as long as we're in America, we still have that option. And that the Christian school should be able to demand, they should, you know, um, grandfather people out. <laughs> if they, not just say on Tuesday, you're out. <laughs> but say at the end of this semester, we are converting over and... Everybody got to be Christian that speaks into the lives of our Christian children. As a parent, if I send my child to a Christian school, I'm going to be mad. <laughs> if you have people that are not Christians teaching. All right. So a lot of perspectives brought up. You guys, you see this stuff is not as easy as it might appear. And um, all these different views within the room. So the people who had to make the decision, uh, they weighed some of the same things that I'm sure that you guys brought up. But it raises for us um, some interesting questions about the nature of art and its position in the world and, and how does it actually affect us as believers? What position does art hold in our own lives? And what is the relationship between faith and art? And so historically, there, there has been a, 
an integration of faith and art for as far back as we can remember. But that has shifted in recent years, I'd say in recent decades, but it's more like recent centuries. There has been a shift where there is a tension between faith and art. We're going to talk about that a bit this morning, but before I go any any further, let's dive into this, into the Word of God, beginning with a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for my brothers and sisters here. I pray, God, that you'll guide us as we look at creating beauty as part of the work you have called us to. I pray you'll guide me as I, uh, as I speak to say exactly what you want. No more, no less. We can encounter the living God, be inspired, motivated, and, and even instructed on how to create beauty in a way that brings you glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The creation of beauty speaks to the heart of who God is. From the very beginning, God is creator. He is introduced in the book of Genesis first as creator. And all that God created, God says, was good. And we are told also that the creation itself tells us about God and reflects God's God's glory and even God's nature. Uh, The heavens declare the glory of God. And in Romans chapter 1, that God's God's character is actually seen in what has been created. And so God is the ultimate creator of beauty. And we, as those who are created in the image of God, are also creators of beauty. We have natural abilities to create, natural abilities abilities to bring things from our imagination into reality. And we also, as believers, have supernatural abilities. In fact, We're going to take a look this morning at the very first person who was ever said to be filled with the Spirit of God. We're turning to Exodus chapter 31, Exodus 31. This takes place at a time when the children of Israel are leaving Egypt. They are coming out of Egypt. They've been delivered by God uh, from captivity, and they are moving through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And God says to Moses, I want you to create a sacred space. I want you to create a place where I will meet with the people. And this sacred space was to be a place where the people would come to inquire of God and where God would come and meet the people in a place designated, set aside specifically for that. And God gave Moses a design for what that place was supposed to be like. God gave very specific instructions for the architecture and the layout of this place called the tabernacle. He also gave specific instructions on the contents of the tabernacle, what was to be in there, because everything in there had a symbolic meaning, just as the very structure and design of this this space had a symbolic meaning. But there's a big difference between the blueprint, the design of a, of a building or of a space, and what actually comes into reality. There is a jump from what is, what is written down, especially if it's, if it's presented in words, and what then comes into reality. And the transition from the, the spoken or written word into the reality comes through the hands of an artist. It comes through the hands of an architect or a contractor, um, someone who actually has to bring it into reality. And so God chose a person to design all of the furnishings of the tabernacle and equip that person with the supernatural power to do that. Listen to this. It says in verse 1 through 5, Then the Lord said to Moses, 
See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engrave in all kinds of, to engage in all kinds of crafts. If you look at the the breadth of skill that this guy has, he's been given the Spirit of God, and look at the functions that he's carrying out. He's going to actually make the artistic design. That means that the things that God spoke and said, I want you to make this, he's going to actually draw them and design what is to be made. In addition to the original design of what is to be made, he's going to fashion things out of uh, gold, silver, bronze, cut stones, wood, and all kinds of crafts. It sounds like a lot of work for one guy, right? Even a guy who is filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, knowledge, and skills, still a lot of work for one guy. And so God says in verse 6, moreover, I have appointed Ahaliab, son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan, to help him. Also, I have given ability to all the skilled workers to make everything I have commanded you. The tent of meeting, the ark of the covenant law, with the atonement cover on it, and all the other furnishings of the tent. The table and its articles, the pure gold lampstand and all its accessories, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offerings and all its utensils, the basin with its stand, and also the woven garments, both the sacred garments for Aaron the priest and the garments for his sons when they serve as priests, and the anointing oil and fragrant incense for for the holy place. They are to make them just as I commanded you. Now, Look at the scope of this thing. You've got people who are, who are wood carvers, carpenters, stone cutters, people in textiles who are going to be working with, with dyeing and cutting and, uh, and sewing fabrics. You have people who are going to be working in, in metals, uh, sheet metal that covers all different kinds of wood as they uh, inlay the walls and the, the, uh, the actual objects themselves, overlay them with gold, people who will be casting things in bronze. In addition, there are those who are, who are going to be cutting precious stones, those who will actually be making the perfume or the incense, and even the fashion industry is represented as people are going to make the clothes that the priests will wear as they are offering the sacrifice. And in all of this, God says, I am giving people the ability to do this. So whether we have natural abilities, they come from God. Whether we have supernatural abilities, they certainly come from God. But notice that when it comes to God creating a space where people would meet with him, this is a project that God is very concerned about and God wants it to be beautiful. From God's perspective, beauty is very important. So as believers, we know that we are to seek truth. We know that we are to live by the truth and to teach the truth. We know we are to seek justice and mercy and to make sure that we are loving our neighbor. But did you know that it is a calling from God as believers to be concerned about and to be engaged in creating beauty? From the earliest days of 
of humanity, there was an integration between worship and art. There's a place actually off the coast of Turkey, a place that's very old, Gubekli Tempe. It's 9,000 BC. It goes all the way back to 9,000 BC, uh, one of the oldest places ever found. And they saw these huge structures. They're, They're these stone pillars that are in like the shape of a T. And as they examined them, they tried to figure out what is the purpose of this place. They looked for any other surrounding artifacts, who lived here, what was their, their lifestyle like. And after much examination, they saw that these objects, these T-shaped objects, also have intricate carvings on them, artistic designs of different creatures, birds and animals and so forth. And after examining it, the, uh, the anthropologist concluded this place is an ancient temple. And so the oldest artistic representations we can find anywhere in the world, the oldest artistic representations were for the purpose of worship. Human beings reaching out for the divine and doing so through the creation of beauty. Art and worship have been intertwined as far back as we can go. However, in recent years, as I mentioned, in recent centuries, especially in the Christian world, uh, there has been this disconnect. Whereas in the Middle Ages, you had, in the, in, and in the Renaissance, you had all of this beautiful artwork de, um, dedicated to the glory of God. I've been to, to uh, the Vatican and saw the work of Michelangelo, and you see the work of da Vinci and others who were dedicating their artwork to an expression of the truths of God and to the glory of God. The shift takes place when there is a tension between modernism and, uh, and, and Christianity, where there, there tends to be a disdain for the arts and much more of a pragmatic approach to faith, where there, yeah, we're, we're concerned about truth, but not so much about beauty. The tension is exacerbated by modern art, which is much more abstract. But I submit to you that actually the abstract art creates an even greater opportunity for us to engage God. See, God gave instructions to Moses that there were to be limits to how art was used when it came to engaging in worship. God said, you're not to represent God in your artwork. How many of you have seen God? Raise your hand if you've seen God. There was some, somebody in first service. I didn't get a chance to talk to her afterwards. She did say she had seen God. But most of us have not seen God. Uh, in fact, the Bible refers to God as invisible and refers to Jesus as the image of the invisible God. God becoming visible was the person, Jesus Christ. But other than that, the Bible says that God is invisible. People have visions and, and uh, it, these representations of God through dreams and visions and so forth, but God is referred to as the invisible God. And so God told people, you are not to make these carvings, these representations of me. I've been to different places around the world, about 35 countries or so. Some places I've been to uh, where there are cultures that are very disconnected from the modern world. And I've also seen a lot of different approaches to worship. And in some places, there are lots and lots of little uh, carvings of various deities, various gods. This is something that 
the Apostle Paul also encountered when he went to Athens. He found that people, as they were reaching out for God, they would do that through artistic expression, but they would do it by creating these physical images of God. And then what happens is there's, a, there's a, an inability to distinguish this object from the God that it was created to represent. And people begin to worship the idols themselves, these objects themselves. This is why God forbid that. But even in forbidding people to make physical representations of God, God commanded them to make beauty that would point people to God. So there's all this detailed instruction about how to create such a beautiful space that was so ornate so that people would be drawn toward God. Let me show you one of the things that art does, um, one of the things that beauty has the ability to do. Beauty is designed to attract. Beauty attracts us And that is part of the power of art is it attracts us. It pulls us in. We see it in nature itself. Uh, How many of you um, are familiar with peacocks? Have you ever seen a peacock up close? You see them wandering around some places in Pasadena. I was up there and I was walking down the street. Here comes this huge peacock, right? So the ones with all the big, beautiful feathers, those are the males. It's kind of different, right? Um, We tend to think females look better. Guys, no offense, but... That's it. They do. But among peacocks, the females are kind of um, plain looking and the males have this big crazy tail, you know, with all the beautiful colors and all. And it's functional. It's not just attractive to look at, but it actually is designed to attract the female. And you find in other species, it's the other way around. In some species, it's the female that has all of this ornate beauty and uh, different colors and it attracts the males. So we see that even in nature, there is a function to beauty, and attraction is a big part of that function. Flowers. How many of you guys like flowers? All right. I see a lot of ladies raising your hands. I said guys. I guess I did mean that neutrally. But are there guys here who like flowers as well? My young brother right there. Yes, indeed. I like flowers too. So flowers, they're, they're pretty, but they also have a function. If that flower is not pretty enough, no bees are coming. And the bees are attracted to the bright colors and the beautiful smell. And as they come there, they pollinate that flower, going from flower to flower. Or the, the um, uh, hummingbirds do the same thing. And so there's a functionality, or, or butterflies, they do the same thing. So we, we find a functionality of beauty is to attract. So as we create art, we need to be thinking, is it attractive? Is it drawing people in? I have a friend who is an amazing musician. In fact, one of the most brilliant musicians I've ever known. He, He, one summer, created like 18 songs over the course of the summer. He could play any wind instrument. Uh, He could play uh, keyboards as well, and he wrote generally on the keyboard. But he was a jazz purist. He only played straight-ahead, old-school jazz. And he had a friend, they were in a band together, who was more into pop music and actually created a group from back in the day. This is going to tell how old some of you are. He created a group called In Vogue. Any of you guys remember a group called In Vogue? Some of you are like, yeah, I'm old enough. All right. So the rest of you Google it. It's good music. Anyway, um, this guy, his name was McElroy. He created this group called In Vogue, and he became really popular and actually started doing really well. And so he said to his buddy who was in this other band with him, hey, let me produce your album. 
I'll produce your music. And that created a tension between them because he's saying, I need at least one commercial song, one song so I can sell the album. In fact, it'd be great if we did one commercial album and then people will know you and then you can play whatever you want. In other words, he's saying, let's attract people to your art. And then as they're attracted, you can uh, show them other things that maybe they would not have known were so beautiful once they have, you have their attention. And it turned into a big conflict. And the other guy said, no, nah, man, I'm not playing anything but straight ahead jazz. He never got his stuff out there. Just saying, it's one thing to create something and it's another thing to create something that is attractive. But once we are attracted, then we begin to reflect. The art itself, the beauty itself attracts but then it reflects and it brings us into a state of reflection. It communicates something. It points to something else. Any piece of art will point to something going on within the artist. And here's the power of modern art. Modern art will also reveal something going on within you. Now, all art does this, but modern art uniquely does it because it, it doesn't have some defined uh, image of a representation of something in nature. So what do you see in it? What you see in it tells you what is in you. It tells you what is in the artist, but it also tells you what is in you. And so it has the ability to attract. It has the ability to reflect something beyond itself, something within the artist, something within the human condition in general, and something even within the eye of the beholder. Beauty also communicates truth to us. It has the ability to teach. It attracts, it reflects something beyond itself, and that it actually teaches things that can bypass the intellect to communicate something to us and cause us to come to an understanding that we sometimes can't even put into words. But sometimes it can even communicate information that we can put into words, but we didn't know how it got there because it came to us through art. I had a really interesting uh, conversation one, one time with a young lady who uh, we were talking about Jesus and she was saying how Jesus had this romantic relationship with Mary Magdalene. And uh, I said, uh, no, that didn't happen. And she said, well, yeah, yeah, it did. And I said, well, where are you getting that? Where are you getting that from? Her answer was, everybody knows that. <laughs> and I said, no, everybody doesn't know that. And in fact, in reading the Gospels, um, there's nothing in there to indicate that that kind of a relationship happened. What you have is a disciple who worshiped Jesus, who was very close to him, but no, it wasn't a romantic relationship. Well, the more I began to dig and talk to her, what we came to find out is that she had read a novel. And in that novel, Mary Magdalene is depicted as being in a romantic relationship with Jesus. She had seen a play. And in that play, there's this suggestive relationship between Mary Magdalene and Jesus. And without even recalling where it came from, from these artistic experiences of reading a well-crafted story and watching a well-performed play, she came to believe something that wasn't in fact real. Beauty attracts. Beauty reflects something beyond itself, something within the world in general, within the artist and within the beholder. And beauty also teaches. It gives us deep understanding sometimes in a way that can even bypass the intellect. This attraction is something that God uses all around us. 
We are told, as I said in the, in the Bible, that nature is supposed to, to draw us in and to tell us about God. But on one unique occasion, God created a little bit of performance art. God set a bush on fire in a way that the bush was not consumed. And Moses, seeing that burning bush, said, I must turn aside to see this strange thing. And it says that God was pleased that Moses stopped to come and look. In the, the story, The Color Purple, there's a line in there that says that God has created all of this beauty, and I'm paraphrasing now because uh, I, I, I don't think I'm supposed to quote exactly what it says, uh, Pastor Minoj, but it basically says that God gets angry when we don't respond to the beauty of the color purple, that God has created something so, beauty, uh, so beautiful that if we don't respond to it, God has a right to be upset. Well, this intertwining of faith and beauty is something that the church is reawakening to and coming back to in our culture today. And I think it's very important that we do that. The spaces that are dominated by people who don't know God, people who are even wrestling and reaching out for God, when the voice of those who have encountered God is not in that artistic space, the whole world suffers for it. When Christians do not engage artists, when we are not intrigued by the beauty that's being created around us, whether it's being created by believers or not, when we are not engaging with the beauty that is being created around us, the world suffers and we suffer because we miss out on an aspect of the human condition of wrestling with our lives through expressions of beauty. How many of you have heard of a, uh, an artist, a, a singer named Billie Eilish? Anybody ever heard of Billie Eilish? Raise your hands. Got quite a few, Pastor Minoj, that listen to Billie Eilish. How many of you actually listen to her stuff? You kind of like her stuff. Uh, I asked earlier, the youth were in the se session. I said, how many of you are actually listening to Billie Eilish and your parents don't know? And, I, you know, and the, uh, the youth pastor raised his hand. So <laughs> this is going on there. Some of you is like, who is he talking about? Well, I'm not really doing a commercial for this particular artist. But what she's known for is her music and her videos are very dark. I mean, like, really dark. Um, frightening images that she portrays. Things like, you know, crying with, with black ink coming out of your eyes and, you know, back with all kinds of needles uh, stuck in it and stuff. There's even a scene in one of her videos where an angel falls from heaven, crashes into a tar pit, and then gets up with blackened tar-covered wings, and it's her, and she says, my Lucifer is lonely. We can see that, and... Many times, our reaction as a believer, when we see something that is offensive in the art world, that is, it's beautiful, so much so that you, you have a hard time turning the video off, it pulls you in, but it may offend our sensibilities in a way that we could say, I just want to get away from that, be isolated from that, but would it not be more appropriate to ask yourself, what is this young woman experiencing that would cause her to use her incredible talents to create that imagery, to engage the art? to come to understand it and to understand what is happening in our society through the eyes of an artist. The Apostle Paul went into Athens and he saw all of these idols, things that were created by artists to represent God. And as people are reaching out to God, they're actually being misled by all of these idols. And it, it grieved the Apostle Paul, but he found a way actually through what might be more in line with abstract art, 
uh, he found a way to communicate with these people. He saw something that was not an idol. It was an altar, and it had a design to it, but on the, the, this altar, it said, to an unknown God. Remembering his history, the apostle Paul says in Acts 17, what you worship as unknown, I am going to tell you about. And going through their history, he begins to recount how God had created all people from one family, created all humanity, and how God has put within every culture something that should draw us to God so that we could reach out and find God. And then he closes his sermon with this line, in him we move, we, in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. He quotes two poems, one by Eris and one by Epimenides that are written describing God. And those poems have all kinds of of kind of weird ideas in them that we would not agree with, but there were two lines. There was one line in one poem, one in another poem that Paul said, that is spot on, and I want to start there and talk to you about the God that I've come to know. He knew the poems. He was so familiar with the lyrics of his day that he could quote them on the fly, and he could use that artistic understanding to engage in a spiritual conversation. Are we equipped to do that today? Um, As... As we uh, contemplate our own ability or lack of ability when it comes to the arts, I want to challenge you to not hide the artistic ability you may have and not to be overly puffed up about it either. We find these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, the Apostle Paul talking to a group of believers. He says, for who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? So here Paul is saying you have natural abilities. You have certain skills and knowledge and understanding, talents. And those abilities were given to you by God even if you don't know God. They are something that you didn't create yourself. So we have a responsibility with what we've been given The famous tenor Pavarotti was asked, who is your favorite singer? And he said, without hesitation, Pavarotti. Now, you may hear that and think how how arrogant of a guy to say that his own voice is the most beautiful voice he's ever heard. But he said, let me be clear. I separate myself from the voice. I am the one who has the voice. I steward the voice. But the voice I separate from myself, and it is the most beautiful voice I have ever heard. And if you've ever heard Pavarotti you just might agree with him. But you notice his understanding is that what he has is a gift that was given to him, and he has to acknowledge that it is a fabulous gift. Are you using your artistic gifts? Are you using them to express what is going on in the world and what is going on within you? Are you using them to cause people to reflect on even who God is and to communicate truths that go beyond words? The backdrop to this presentation, that picture in the background, was actually created by a wonderful modern artist. These are some others of his creations. He has a wonderful skill, uh, crafted over many, many years of discipline, an initial talent from God that he has worked so hard to bring it to the peak where he is world-renowned. That individual is Makato Fujimura. And here's what he has to say 
about the importance of art and beauty. He says the best of the arts also point to or even redefine the world to come, causing us to rise up like Lazarus from the dark tomb of cynicism and despair. See, he has experienced a lot in his life, a lot of pain and a lot of wrestling. He was not born a Christian and didn't grow up as a Christian. In fact, I'd like you to take a look at this video that talks about his own spiritual journey and how art and beauty actually guided him to the God who gave him this gift. My friends, uh, as we yield to the attraction of beauty, let us reflect on the one who gave the ability to create it. And as we engage it, let us allow it to teach us things that cannot be grasped with simple words. And as we have the ability, let us engage in creating beauty ourselves. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for my brothers and sisters, and I thank you for the gift of beauty. It is a reflection of you, the beautiful one. I pray, Lord God, that we would wholeheartedly embrace beauty all around us. Go following the reflection that it gives and allowing it to teach us and then creating beauty ourselves that point to the one who so beautifully gave himself for us. In Jesus' name we pray.